Good singing. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis 47. Genesis 47. And as you turn there, I thought it'd be good for you to know the song that we just sang and sang last week as well was written by William Cowper. You've heard me reference it in a few sermons. But I'm very grateful for our associate pastor, Mark Mincy, who actually wrote the music for that song uh, for us to be able to sing it uh, the last couple of weeks together. So notice the words just said, words by William Cowper, and he, I asked him last week, I said, I think you should put your name down there because you wrote this. <laughs> and he's like, well, anyway, so I, I want us to just thank the Lord for the gifts that he's given us in this church to be able to take a song of great theology, like God moves in a mysterious way or a text like that, and put it to a tune that we can sing and learn together. But that theme is certainly prevalent in the book of Genesis. We're going to see it again here in Genesis 47. And because the text is actually a little more manageable, as opposed to some of the others that we've looked at, I'm going to read the entire story for us, beginning at verse 13. We're going to go all the way to the end of the chapter. Genesis 47, let's read verses 13 to 31. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they brought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money's gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There's nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food. And we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh, and give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh." So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priest alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, 
So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. How would you feel if I told you that in the sermon today, we were going to talk about politics? I mean, capitalism, socialism, um, free market economy. I mean, we were just going to hit, like, the real issues of the day. Maybe I even, like, addressed a big word that's come up in recent days, fascism. (laughs) I think for some of you, the prospect of a conversation like that, in a context like this, would scare the pants off you. You you would tremble literally in fear if you knew that that's what the dialogue would be about. Some of you, I bet it revs you up. You're like, yes, I've been waiting for this. I've been wanting like some real political discourse in this pulpit. Some of you may be ambivalent. Some of you may be outraged and say, that is not biblical. I can't believe that we would ever talk about anything like that in a place like this. You know, the responses are all over the place when it comes to talking about what most people consider to be real-world issues. And yet I wonder why. I wonder why we're so hesitant or so surprised when Scripture speaks to some of the most pressing issues of the day. I think there's two reasons. One is because of us. We typically approach the scriptures with this kind of ho-hum, I don't think it really matters attitude. We know it's the Word of God, we know that it's important, but frankly, we see it as just a smidge irrelevant. I mean, after all, I mean, it was written close to 2,000 to 4,000 years ago. I mean, really, how much of an impact can it have on our everyday life? And almost like someone who gives one of those self-fulfilling prophecies, we come to the scriptures thinking, Man, this Old Testament text really doesn't have anything in here for me. And guess what? We find that there's not really anything in here for me. (laughs) When we approach the Scriptures with this assumption that they're not relevant, we tend to find them irrelevant. So part of it is our own faulty assumptions. But another thing that I think is going on actually happens because of guys like me in places like this. I think that pastors have this unique penchant for staying away from certain topics that they think might rile people up, even though they may be clearly implicated in the text. Preachers will ignore what one author calls the context of reality that is inherent in Scripture, and by so doing, they, not purposefully, but rather unintentionally, impose upon the text what is some have called expository bands, expository bands. 
Zach Eswine, in his book on preaching, actually summarizes or describes these bands this way, and I want to read it for you. He says, by an expository ban, I refer to those aspects of reality that we tend to avoid or that are culturally forbidden to mention from the pulpit. Sexuality, emotions, famines, joys, tsunamis, celebrations, dreams, promotions, murders, crime victims, cancer survivors, and injustice are part of everyday life, but we avoid them. We avoid them. And indeed we do. I know that I've been guilty of this in times past. And yet what I know to be true and what you know to be true is this, that Scripture actually addresses the context of reality. It may not use the terms capitalism, socialism, fascism, free market economy, but it speaks to those issues. You, you have in the Scriptures oppressive governments. You have worldwide and desperate need. You have real problems. You have emotional issues. You not only have sin, hypothetically, but actually. As, as acts of injustice are perpetrated, as acts of violence take place, I mean, like, this book and its truth occurs in a real context, just like the one that you're in. The real world didn't just get real this year. It was that way 2,000 years ago and 4,000 years ago. And Scripture was writing to that very group. And therefore, it speaks to these real issues. And it offers real hope. It offers real hope. This text here especially could seem at first glance to fall short of what Eswine calls the context of reality. I mean, how many of you, when I was reading this just a few minutes ago, were like, yes, we finally covered my favorite text in the Old Testament? I wasn't picking that up from what I was seeing. <laughs> you haven't found out that Reader's Digest did a condensed version of the Bible, and this was one of the passages they took out. Like, why, why would this even be in here? Some people think it's irrelevant. Some people think it's just kind of irreverent. I mean, the fact that we've got this good guy, Joseph, and I like him. He's on my team. He's one of my favorites. And then we see him do the stuff that we see in this thing, and we're like, oh, that's a blight on his character. I'd rather erase this one and have a better picture of Joseph in my mind. I mean, so some people don't like it. Some people think it's boring. And yet, if you think about what's actually going on here, it's eerily similar to many of the real-world problems that we would even designate today. You have a global crisis. You have what could seem to be, to an American especially, an oppressive government. You have unique racial tension in between this special group of outsiders, these refugees who were forced into a new land out of desperation, coexisting with other people in the land, and in all of it, God is somehow working and providing? This thing's real. And I hope that as we look at it, the provision of God that has so worked throughout the pages of the Old Testament will become even more real to us. Real-world problems in a text actually provided for by God should be able to remind us in the real-world problems we face today that our God still provides. 
He provides here in this text to two different groups, really in two different ways. One is the general provision of God. You'll see it in the first half of the chapter, actually the first three-fourths of the text. And the second is the special provision of God. The general provision of God extends for just humanity in general. The special provision of God is going to show the superior provision of God for his people specifically. But let's look at it. I mean, this, these first few verses, verses 13 to 26, about how God provides for the world generally in this situation. And as I say that, again, if you were reading the text carefully, you're thinking, I don't think that he was really being all that nice to the Egyptians. It could seem that way. It could seem that way because you are a Westerner, because you have grown up with an individualist mindset. You think a certain system is right in all contexts, and you would impose it upon the text. You can't help it. I can't help it. And so I want to acknowledge as I'm studying through the text with you this morning that you're going to see some things that will make you feel uncomfortable. But the scriptures themselves are actually celebrating, not condemning, what happens in this passage. It's celebrating. You say, Justin, it doesn't look like provision to me because Joseph, in these first few verses, basically takes up all their money. I mean, look at the desperate situation that Joseph seems to avail himself of. Verse 13, there's no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe. It's presenting a pretty stark picture here. So that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. Languished, that means struggled to survive. It was withering away. Friends, we have no clue what this is like. I mean, I think you would probably like have to go back to what Stalin did to the Ukrainians in the 30s to get a, like a modern picture of wide-scale famine like this, what, like what was going on. I mean, we read the word famine and, and we, 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 we contextualize too easily to, oh man, the stock market had a bad day on Thursday. It must stink. I know, what I know what it's like to go through a famine. No, you don't. In a context in which, I've said this so many times, but it's good for us to remember, if you've ever had to have a garage sale or you ever struggled to lose weight, you have no clue what a famine's like. We have too much stuff. We have too much food. Even amid a crisis, and yet here the word famine, just like the word crucifixion would in the first century bring up certain images, famine would bring up certain images. I mean, we're talking emaciated bodies, children with bloated bellies. We're talking about people doing anything to survive at sometimes even eating one another. It's replete in history. It's a horrible picture. And that's the desperation that's occurring in this particular moment. And notice what Joseph does in this. Again, through your Western American eyes, you're going to look and say, I cannot believe that things are this desperate. And Joseph, verse 14, is going to gather up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan. The word gathered up there is interesting. It's the same one that's used in the book of Ruth to talk about gleaning. And like he scrapped up, like he got up like everything that was left over. He took every bit of money that these folks had. I mean, to use a modern phrase, he cleaned them out. <laughs> and notice what he does. He gathered up all the money that was found in the land. They had no more liquid assets left. And in exchange for the grain they bought, so he gave them grain in exchange for it. 
And Joseph brought the money, and he put it into Pharaoh's house. I mean, Joseph, like at first glance, is like anti-Robin Hood. You know, we love Robin Hood because he steals from the rich and he gives to the poor, which if we were going to make this political, some people would say, oh, that's socialism. But Joseph doesn't just do that. He actually takes from the poor and gives to the rich, which, by the way, some people would say, wrongly, that's capitalism. (laughs) But this isn't even what is like pejoratively labeled capitalism. Again, pejoratively, that's not what it really is, folks. Don't worry. Joseph actually gives it to one guy. He doesn't just give it to the rich in general. He gives it to one guy. This is authoritarianism or totalitarianism. I'm like, it's all going to one guy? And it's going to keep talking about how Pharaoh benefits from this deal. Notice it says in verse 16, like it wasn't just money, but now Joseph, a year later, is going to take their livestock. Verse 15, excuse me. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. So they don't have any money left. And what does he do? Next, he takes all their livestock. So he takes all their liquid assets. Now he takes all their capital investments. So this is, this is like their real property. And he takes it all. Now, I, I can't imagine what it'd be like to take everybody's like, flocks and stuff. What, I probably, what is probably going on here, just if you want a more realistic picture, is he mortgages all of their property. It's now the property of the Egyptian government. It's not like it's all sitting in a big field somewhere. That would be impossible. And yet, he doesn't have any problem. And guess what? He gives them the grain. That's what they asked for. There's no free lunch here, folks. There's no government handout. Like, even in their most desperate times, like, what's going to happen is, like, the people can get the help that they need to live from the government, and yet they're going to have to give something. And so they do. So they give up all their liquid assets. They give up all their capital investments. And then it gets to the end, and they're like, it's a year later, and we already read it. But they actually propose another plan to Joseph, and this is what they say. Hey, as you well know, we don't have any money left, and we don't have any livestock left, so therefore, we're going to give you our land and even our own selves, our lives. And this is where, like, our American radar goes off. I can't believe that Joseph would actually enter into an agreement in which he would take somebody's property and their person. And yet I want you to read it again and just let it shock you, let it bother you for a moment. This is good old Joseph that we love so much. He says in verse uh, 18, And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of the livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants, or some translations put it, slaves to Pharaoh, and give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate. Now, do do you see... (laughs) What's happening here? Like, it's like they're giving up their very lives. And so we start to hear and think, like, oh my goodness, I can't believe that Joseph would impose a slave system upon these people. And here's where, stay with me intellectually for a moment, 
you need to check your American senses for a moment. Slavery is a horrific thing, especially as we normally think of it. Normally, somebody in the United States of America thinks of slavery, and where does their mind go? It immediately goes to antebellum slavery in the South. They think of the African-American slave trade in the West Indies and the horrific abuse and the oppression that took place for the greater part of a hundred years in this country where people were literally treated like property, in some cases treated worse than even animals. You can read it for yourself. There's plenty of literature to go around these days. And that was absolutely horrific. And yet, friends, you need to be careful that you're not looking at the word slave every time you see it in the Old Testament or even in the New Testament and thinking of that. What's happening here is less like antebellum slavery in the 1800s and more like a vassal fiefdom in the mid-1000s. So you take any time like that feudal landlord kind of system where there was a, a wealthy property owner and he had a lot of people who lived on his land and in exchange for the resources that they needed to live, they would farm for him. Actually, we still have this where I grow up. It's called tenant farming where somebody gets a piece of property, they get to use the piece of property for themselves, and they, a percentage of it goes to the owner. That's what's happening here. They're entering into a tenant relationship. Notice what Joseph says to them, by the way, in verse 20. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, so it comes under his formal uh, ownership, and for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. Verse 21, as for the people, he made servants of them from one end to the other. Think, he made indentured servants of them, contracted workers of them. Only the land of the priest he did not buy, for the priest had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell the land. Now, again, I, I want you to get what's going on. You, you need to see that even though you may not like the way that the arrangement works out, God is actually providing for these people in a time when they needed it. You know what their alternative was? To die. <laughs> it's that desperate. It's that bad. And yet God provides through their working, through their saving. What I want you to see is that even in like God's economy in the Old Testament, there was no free handout. Like You were always exchanging to get something. Did you know that even in the book of Leviticus, if one of God's people fell into financial duress, do you know what their recourse was to survive? It was to sell their land so that they could get the money that they needed to live. And guess what? If they couldn't get enough money for the land, you know what they were supposed to do? They were supposed to give their own selves as quote-unquote slaves to someone else. Like they were to offer themselves in service. Now again, don't think 18th century United States, start thinking like the medieval period, and you'll get a, get a better picture. If I wanted to modernize it, I would say this, and I don't mean to be crass, but they got a job. They worked. They offered up some of their freedom in exchange for finances. That's kind of the way the economy works. Like, if you need something, you know what God has provided for, like, in his common grace? 
He's provided for government, yes, but he's also provided for means by which you can get money in your hands and pay for that which you need. And guess what? God has entrusted some of you with property. And you know what that property is for? Your survival. And guess what? Sometimes things may get lean. You might have to sell some of that property, but that is God's provision. I think that we too often think of the providence of God as like the miracles of God. God is not always miraculously looking to intervene into our lives and just like poof, have stuff show up. But He is actually working as we get a job and as we pay taxes and then a government helps us out in times of desperation. Now, what I want you to see here is that in God's general providence, He works through our work and He works through governments to provide for people generally. Am I saying that government is perfect? No. Am I saying that government could get better? Yes. Am I saying that government also, I mean, often messes up? Absolutely. Are there better governments than others? Absolutely. But at the same time, the scriptures teach that government is a good gift from God. It's intended for our protection. Just listen again to Romans 13, and I want you to remember that what's going on there is very similar to what's going on in the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, what you have in, uh, in Egypt at this time is a theocratic monarchy. Pharaoh, I mean, you talk about a bad system of government. Pharaoh thinks he's God, and he's the king, and yet he still has an obligation to provide for the people. Guess what's going on in Romans 13? Nero is the emperor, and guess what? He thinks he is God. And in that government system, notice what Paul says to the Romans. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Why would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Well, there's a relevant line. You know what he's reminding us of in Romans chapter 13 is that governments, God has erected those for our good. And so God provides for the Egyptians generally here. You say, Justin, I still don't like all the stuff that's going on here. I think Joseph could have been nicer. Um, let's read this the way that the original audience would have read it. How do they respond to this? Do they think, man, Joseph is so mean, he's so oppressive. I mean, what a pompous jerk. I can't believe that he wouldn't just give us this stuff. That is not at all what they say. Notice their response to Joseph's leadership in this particular instance. I mean, it is mind-blowing. Verse 23, then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four fifths shall be your own. 
as seed for the field and as food for yourselves and your households and food for your little ones. And notice what they said, verse 25. You have saved our lives. You have saved our lives. May it please, my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh, basically. We will become tenant farmers, basically. We will get a job, basically. We will pay 20% taxes. That's what they do. They avail themselves of God's providence. He had provided for them through a government that had wisely saved. And so in this instance, they say, okay, we'll take the food that you'll give us. And in exchange for that, for the next, I mean, in perpetuity, we will pay you 20%. And notice the emphasis. It says, hey, you're going to take the 80% and you're going to use it for yourself and you're going to use it for your kids and you're going to use it for your kids' kids. (laughs) This is a good deal. By the way, I think that most in this room would probably say, man, I wish tax was only 20%. (laughs) You know, even in the standards of the day, you look at other ancient Near Eastern cultures and just tax rates at the time, the average was 33 and a third. And yet, what does Joseph work out here? 20%. This was a good thing. And what I want you to notice in this is that these Egyptians, these pagans, these, I mean, who did not know the name of Yahweh, were benefiting from his good and kind rule as he had taken this foreigner from the land of Canaan, put him in the right place at the right time, given him the insight to see what was going to happen, and literally saved their lives. This is the goodness of God that is alive and well at work in our world today, not just for Christians, friends, but for the whole world. I think we struggle. We struggle to see the goodness of God in the world today Because we so often think that we deserve something better. Your unsaved neighbor who laments the condition of the world today, or who laments the stock market, or who thinks that God is not good, God is not just, God is not wise because of problems that he or she sees in the news on a regular basis, is assuming that this God who runs the world would actually not care about the way a rebellious planet treats him. If you want a picture of how God should respond to our widespread rebellion on a planetary level, I would just point you to Genesis chapter 6 again. It says that the thoughts of man's heart were evil continually, and what did he do, friends? He destroyed the whole thing. That's what a rebellious world deserves. And yet we've got Louis Armstrong playing in our mind thinking, oh, it's a wonderful world. I need, you know, green grass and bright days, and I need red roses. And like, like we expect, like, God is just going to reward our rebellion. And when you're starting from that point, of course, you would question the goodness and the wisdom and the grace of God. And yet, when that flood ended... You go to Genesis chapter 8, and you're going to discover that God says, you know what, I'm never going to destroy the entire world through this natural means again. He says, I'm actually going to ensure that the world will go on as long as I want it to. There will be natural seasons. There will be a kind and general providence for the entire planet. So for those who worry that the nuclear arms race will plunge us into imminent destruction, you do not have to worry. God will preserve 
his planet. For those of you worried that we're on track to hit some huge asteroid in a few years and the entire planet's just going to go up in smoke, don't worry, God will preserve his planet. For those of you concerned that global warming will melt the polar ice caps and we will not have a planet 300 years from now, don't worry, God will preserve his planet. There is a sense in which God will continue to superintend and provide for people on this planet by giving them means by which to like, make money, get a job, and he will still give them governments, sometimes corrupt, who will ultimately provide and protect. That's God's general providence. This is the normal way that he works. It's his gracious, normal provision. So God provides for the world generally. Like, they survive here. And, and the text, the text, not our culture, but the text presents this as a good thing. But I want you to see something. There's something better even here. Something better. Don't worry, we're not going to walk out of here today, today and say, all right, great, I can have a job and I can pay taxes. <laughs> Don't worry, there's better news than that. But that is good news if you think of the alternative. The better news is that God not only provides for the world generally, but he provides for his people specially. He provides for his people specially. Look at verse 27. This is an amazing contrast. Thus, Israel settled in the land of Egypt. Now notice this is how things went for them when all this was going on. In the land of Goshen, they gained possessions in it and were fruitful, and multiplied greatly. (laughs) Do you notice the contrast here? Like, all right, so indeed, the Egyptians are surviving, and they're grateful to have survived, but notice how God is treating his special people under the same circumstances and in the exact same place. Here, he actually enables them to thrive numerically and to thrive materially. It says that they were fruitful and their numbers increased greatly. I mean, God was looking out for his people in a special way. He was arranging for them, like within God's providence. Like there was no, again, just like heavenly shipment of bread that went to them, but it was through normal people and circumstances and events that, I mean, they end up moving from here to there and the right guy gets in the right place at the right time and is the right connection. I mean, through normal stuff. Some of them extraordinary providences, they end up exactly where God wants them to be, and he provides for his people in a special way. And as I said last week, we see that embryonic Israel will gestate in the womb of Egypt. They will become a strong and powerful nation, despite all the stuff that's going on around them because of God's special provision for his people. Friends, I think that you, we often misunderstand this. Here's a theological like, point. God provides. I, I think we need a better definition of the word providence, by the way. Guys like me will throw around the word providence, and like, you can misplace it for fate. The word providence just comes from two words, pro and video. You know, pro, before, and video, to see. So we're talking about like to see ahead of time. When, when we even say that someone is providing, basically we're saying that they will see to something. They, they saw that there was a need, and they proactively worked to meet that need. God's providence is that. It is the way that he provides. They're not two different words. <laughs> he sees ahead, and therefore he provides for need. And you know the way that he normally works? 
I don't care if you look in the Westminster Confession of Faith or if you look in the Second London Baptist Confession. They're the exact same on this point. Chapter 5, point 1, it says basically God sees to everything. God sees to everything. This is my summary. Point number 2, he normally uses secondary means. He normally uses like human stuff. So God sees to everything, and he normally does it in a way that seems invisible to us, like he normally works through the natural world. Now, you got that part, but I love the way that the divines actually summarize the special treatment of God for his people. It isn't just that God works in every way for his people in most circumstances Line 7 says this, As the providence of God doth in general reach to all creatures, so after a more special manner it taketh care of his church and disposeth of all things to the good thereof. I'll say that again. He's acknowledging that the providence of God reaches to all creatures, but after a more special manner, that's why I use the word specially, it taketh care of his church and disposeth of all things to the good thereof. God's people still pay taxes. God's people still get a job. But guess what? God still looks after his people in a very special way. The verse that the dudes at Westminster put together for this was 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6, uh, verse 10. And you probably remember, or 4, verse 10, where it says that, that Jesus is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. <laughs> There's a special sense in which God provides salvation for his people. So there's a general rescue. God allows people like, to still live and not immediately like, incinerate from his wrath. <laughs> but there's also a special salvation that's offered. Did you know that there is a sense in which God is specially looking after you despite the means that you're already taking advantage of? I mean, if, if you would just think to a passage like Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34, where Jesus says, do not be anxious, do not be anxious, do not be anxious. And who is he saying, don't be anxious to? The people who can call God their father. That's who enjoys special provision. He's not speaking to everyone on the mountainside that day. He's speaking to his disciples, the people who were following him. And they would be able to rest in this fact that God would provide for them in a special way. That's why he says, seek you first the kingdom of God, and then all these things will be added to you. For those who have like the kingdom of God as their highest allegiance, God is looking out for them in a special way. You see it in the Old Testament. Remember the book of Esther? Not one time is God's name mentioned. It's just like natural means, right? And yet God works and orchestrates behind the scenes to preserve his people and puts Esther in the right place at the right time, or to quote the Bible, for such a time as this. It was special protection being offered to his people. That is the way that God works. So yeah, he provides generally, but he also provides in a special way. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is, are we his child? Are we in his church? Only those who have repented of that rebellion against him and relied upon the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ alone can claim that special protection. And let us not misunderstand. What does the special protection look like? Does this mean that Christian people are going to make more money than non-Christian people? Good luck. 
It doesn't work that way. It doesn't mean that you don't ever get a disease. It doesn't mean that your retirement account never dips. It doesn't mean that you always keep your job. But it does mean that God is providing. He is seeing to every need of yours in every moment in a special way. He takes from you when he knows it will be best, and he gives to you when he knows it will be best. He does not have that same obligation, even though the financial circumstances may look very similar. He does not have that same obligation to those who are not his children. There is a special care, a special providence for the people of God. But there is not only a a special providence by which he works all things for good to those who love him, but there is an eternal providence. Look at verses 28 to 31 and we'll be done. This looks like a little addition, like you're thinking, why is this here? Good question. Notice. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, notice how he begs him here, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me die with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. Now pause here for a moment. Do you notice like how intent Jacob is, in this instance, of not being buried in Egypt. I mean, he forces his son into a formal oath of the time. This always fascinates us who didn't grow up in this culture. Like, what is the deal with the hand on the thigh? (laughs) It says under his thigh. Could you just imagine reaching up under some dude's thigh? I mean, this is weird. And yet, I assure you, friends, people in other countries look at things that Americans do and think, man, that's just weird. It's a different culture, it's a different world, but it is a means by performing a solid oath. Without being crass, the truth is that when you put your hand under some dude's thigh, your hand is close to his member of procreation, which makes one think of longevity. It makes one think of ongoing life. It is a solemn vow that testifies to the future of a family. You see it earlier in the book of Genesis. In our culture, we have our means of doing a solemn vow. Somebody will stand in a courtroom and they'll put their hand on a Bible. So here we have a solemn vow dealing with the future. He's saying, look, this is serious. When it relates to the future of my family, when it relates to the children who have come from these loins, you make sure that they know that their father didn't live here in Egypt where everything's all nice and everything's well provided for, as great as it is, I want them to know that there is something still even better than what they are experiencing here and now. There is a land that God had promised my father and his father. There is a land to which we must ultimately go. It is not about the here and now. There is something else still to come. Please remember, let them know that I do not belong here. They do not belong here. God still has something better in store for his children. And the parallel is too easy to see. It's too easy to see. This is why, friends, the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 11 in particular, will actually point out this very instance. Hebrews chapter 11 
And I want to begin reading at verse 13 so you get the context. He's talking about the patriarchs, and this is what it says about them. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. This material stuff that they got, by the way, I want you to get this, was not like the the main fulfillment of the promise. But having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, they, they knew that they didn't belong here. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. When you call yourself a stranger or an exile, you're saying you've got somewhere else to go. Verse 15, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And you jump down to verse 21, it includes Jacob in the same mindset. It says, by faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of his sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. And by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Why in the world was Joseph, I mean, Jacob so interested in where his bones would be? Because he wanted to remind them that they were not seeking this land. They were seeking a heavenly land, one whose builder and maker was God. They were looking for, or to be looking for, an exodus by which they would eventually leave all this chaos, all this strife, and enter into the good promised land of God. And so when we talk about the providence of God, friends, yes, we need to be thankful. We need to be thankful for His general providence. It would be entirely appropriate for you to walk out of this place today and thank God for the fact that you have a job and the fact that you can pay taxes. I mean, like, that is a means by which God is looking out for you and he's looking out for the other people who aren't even Christians in the same way. He's a good and gracious king in that way. But there's more to it than just his general providence. There's also his special providence. There's those ways that you know are true in which he like directed and nudged and and, and pushed you in the right place at the right time. And he gave you exactly what you needed to continue and sustain life and ministry. Like those are the special times that he worked those things that you thought were so mysterious, so unfathomable, as we sang earlier, and he worked them out for good. That's his special providence. That's something that he does for his children. That's something that he does for his people. And as cool as that is, there's something even better. And that is his eternal providence. Because you look around and you're thinking, man, I can't get enough money or property out of what's going on right now to make it worth it. I mean, this place, this planet is fundamentally broken. Good observation. That's why you're waiting for a better one. That's why you're waiting not for the mediated rule of the current government, but you're waiting for the unmediated rule of King Jesus himself by which he comes and fixes all that is broken. That is where our hope lies. It is not in the next election cycle. It is not making it through the COVID crisis. It is not in new social reforms. Like the way things will get the way they're supposed to be is the eternal providence of God when he constitutes a better city. That is where our hope ultimately lies. And so, our God has provided. Generally, specially, eternally. But in the meantime, we pray, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let's pray 
and then let's praise God in response for his good providence. Father, for whoever may be here today, anxious, feeling real-world problems pressing in on them, whether they be personally or whether they be more broadly, assure them today with your good providence the fact that you do provide means or by which we can get that which we need to live or to encourage them with just your general provision day to day. I've yet to know a member of this church or even a friend in this lifetime, in or outside the church, who has ever died of starvation. Generally speaking, you provide. And yet I know that there are places in this world in which, Lord, famine is real and people still suffer. And so we acknowledge that though you provide for the world generally, there is still need and we need you to come and fix what is broken. So help us, Lord, to in your providence, Lord, spread your good provision to a lost and needy world, but not just Lord, the general provision, but the special provision, Lord, that which is even more necessary for life, eternal life, Lord, that good news that Christ has reconciled us to himself who have believed in him. And I pray that you would encourage us with that special relationship that we enjoy with you. Even though things can be uncomfortable, even though we don't like what we see around us, remind us that you're still working all things for good for your church to those who are called according to your purpose. That you offer a special means of provision for your people. So encourage there. Father, I pray that you would invigorate, Lord, our hope, knowing that the way things are currently aren't the way that they should be. We long for the return of our Savior. We long for our eternal home. We long for that which you have ultimately promised us. And so may we find real, concrete hope in your return, even in this week. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.